Growing up, I went to a Lutheran elementary school that happened to observe Lent. So I remember seeing people on Ash Wednesday with little ash crosses on their foreheads. Lent is not a biblical holiday. It comes from church history, started around the 4th century AD. But it's become ingrained in Catholic church and some Protestant traditions as well. Lent is supposed to commemorate the 40-day fast of Jesus in the wilderness. And some churches used to require all devotees to fast for all 40 days of Lent. But these days, most traditions simply encourage people to offer up what they call Lenten sacrifice, which is giving something up for Lent. This is a type of fast, either for penance or devotion, in preparation for Easter, which comes after the 40 days of Lent. So growing up, I also remember people giving things up for Lent. Typical sacrifices included sugar, soda, sweets. Today, some people might give up vices like drunkenness, immorality, profanities, like they vow to go straight and narrow for 40 days. But I've never met any person who has kept their Lenten sacrifice. Lent just kind of seems like the Christian equivalent of a New Year's resolution. No one keeps it. But I think Lent even more so showcases how empty and vain man's religion can become. You see that reflected in the day before Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of a 40-day fast, but the church decided to create a feast day before the fast day. This feast was designed to let you indulge in all the things you're going to have to give up for the next 40 days. But it quickly turned into a day of total excess. You know what the day before Ash Wednesday is called? It is called Fat Tuesday. You probably know it by its French name, Mardi Gras. And today, cities around the world celebrate Mardi Gras in a big way, from New Orleans to uh, Rio. But what are these celebrations all about? There are literally parades of drunkenness, sexual morality, more. I mean, I wonder, like, could this be the single most revolting day to God on the planet? And the worst part is the hypocrisy of those who claim to be religiously devout, that they, they go swimming in the deep end of licentiousness on Tuesday, and they think, God will be pleased with them because they're going to give up coffee for the next 40 days. <laughs> it's, it's nonsense. And I think it's the hypocrisy of Lent and other fasts of the Catholic Church and some Protestant churches have led many other Protestants to turn away from fasting altogether. In evangelical Christianity today, there seems to be a little room at the table for fasting. Fasting has been long forgotten. It's been relegated to the pages of church history. It's something Catholics do, or maybe other religions, or if you're trying to lose weight, you might try it as like a diet. But fasting for spiritual reasons, that's not something we do anymore. But this might be one case where the baby has been thrown out with the bathwater, where pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. There is certainly a wrong way to fast, and modern practices are beset with hypocrisy. But that doesn't mean fasting by itself is wrong. The Bible has a positive view of fasting. And while it is true, fasting is never once commanded for believers. There are plenty of biblical fasts done in the right way and for the right reasons. And it is true. The Lord Jesus himself did fast for 40 days in the wilderness before he faced the devil. There's something to say about this practice. The Bible has something to say about it. I think that's worth hearing finding out. And perhaps it's time for you to rediscover this long-neglected practice. At the very least, wouldn't you want to hear what Jesus has to say about it? 
Indeed, he addresses it in our passage this morning as we continue to go through Matthew's gospel. So you can open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 6. Our next passage, verses 16 through 18, where he addresses fasting. Matthew 6, 16 through 18. We're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount now. And in the body of the sermon, Jesus is displaying the, the type of righteousness that should characterize his disciples as citizens of his kingdom. And so far, he's been painting that picture of right living by contrast. This is a contrast with the scribes, the uh, Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel. As you well know by now, they were complete hypocrites. They they only knew self-righteousness, not true righteousness. And so in chapter 5, Jesus makes a contrast with the twisted teaching of these leaders. They took God's law, they bended it around to make it say what they wanted it to say, but Jesus straightens it back out. Shows us what it really means. Now in chapter 6, he's still making a contrast with the religious leaders, only now with their twisted practices. Not only was their teaching marked by hypocrisy, but so was their living. Now this new section starts back at chapter 6, verse 1, and it's been several weeks, so let's, let's go back to chapter 6, verse 1, and look at that uh, verse again. This begins this section. Matthew 6, verse 1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Throughout chapter 5, Jesus emphasized the heart. God wants righteousness in your heart. But not only in your heart. I mean, starting from the heart, our righteousness must extend to our deeds. God cares about what we do. You, You have to walk the walk. But still, you have to walk the walk in the right way and for the right reasons. And that's what Jesus is calling out here in chapter 6. It's not that the scribes and Pharisees were doing all the wrong things. They were doing many right things. They often did right things, but they did them from wrong motives, which spoiled their deeds. Like baking a cake with rotten eggs. God really wanted no part of their offerings. What was their problem? Verse 1 says, It was not their practice of righteousness. It was not even their practice of righteousness before men. It was their practice of righteousness before men to be seen by them, to be noticed by them. That They had a self-serving motive. It comes down to the motive of their deeds, and it was pride. They wanted praise. They wanted their religious deeds not to worship God, but essentially self. And because of this, though, they found no reward from God. To make sure we really get this warning not to practice our righteousness before others, to be seen by them, that Jesus immediately follows up this one verse with three illustrations, all making the same point, all reinforcing the point of verse 1. Verses 2 through 4 uses the example of giving. Verses 5 through 15 uses the example of praying. And then verses 16 through 18, the example of fasting. That's our text for today. But these are three pillars of Jewish practice, and they all could be legitimate expressions of devotion. Giving in relation to others, praying in relation to God, fasting in relation to self. These all have a good place and purpose. But how quickly they can be misshapen and turn into vehicles of self-worship. That can and still does happen today. So we too definitely need to heed this warning. In all that we do, 
We must take care that in all that we do, we're not doing it to be seen by others, to be noticed by others, to win the praise of others, but we're simply doing it to serve God, to please God. All our religious deeds, whether public or private, must only ever have one audience, and that's God. He's the only audience to all that we do. Now, we've already already traveled through the first two examples of giving and praying. In fact, we camped out several weeks in the subject of prayer because Jesus adds some bonus verses to this section on prayer. He gives us what's often called the Lord's Prayer, but we wrapped that up last week. And today we're going to wrap up this, this whole section, which ends here at verse 18 in the Sermon on the Mount. But we still have to go through this third illustration of doing the right things from the wrong reasons. Here it's all about fasting. So let's just read what Jesus has to say about it. Matthew 6, 16 through 18 to start. Verse 16, he says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Blaine fasting. He assumes and knows all too well as his audience and his disciples know what matter overturning that. Really though, here and for many, it's not part of their religion, this passage of scripture and its meaning, but perhaps also invigorate some of you to rediscover fasting in the right way. So a quick further intro before we get to the passage, a general introduction to fasting. Fasting is part of our everyday lives. Just you may not realize it. Every time you eat breakfast, you're breaking your fast, right? That is where the English word breakfast came from. It originally referred to the the first meal of your day. Not necessarily a morning meal, just the first meal after you were breaking your fast. But we no longer live in a culture that fasts, so breakfast is literally just our morning meal. Biblically, though, it's, it's a different story. There are many examples of fasting in Scripture for spiritual reasons. Did you know fasting is only ever once commanded in the Bible for God's people? It is for uh, national Israel living in the land around the annual Day of Atonement. That's it. Just once a year were they ever commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement. As time went on, especially after the exile, the Jews instituted many more national fasts and other fasts, but these never came by way of command from the Torah. They only had one command to fast. That being said, though, the people started to understand that any time a person needed to humble their soul and desperately seek the Lord in prayer, fasting could accompany that. This includes the desperate need of deliverance. So, for example, in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat sees the Ammonites and the Moabites. They're invading Judah. So he proclaims a fast for all people that they might pray and seek help from the Lord. Also, Esther chapter 4, all the Jews living in exile are called on to pray and fast for three days for Esther as she prepares to stand before the king, plead for the lives of her people against Haman's wicked scheme. There are many examples of people praying and fasting when they're in need of deliverance. You also have examples of people fasting to pray for forgiveness, Fasting is very often connected to the confession of sins. Nehemiah chapter 9, the people corporately gather to confess their sins even after the exile. They do so with prayer and fasting in sackcloth. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel himself fasts in sackcloth, 
confessing sin, not, not his own sin. He's interceding, confessing the sin of his people, pleading for God to bring them back after the exile. And then in Jonah chapter 3, at the preaching of Jonah by God's amazing grace, that the people of Nineveh repent. And the king then proclaims a fast for all people. And he says, Jonah 3.8, Let men call on God earnestly, that each man may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. And so there's also many instances of people broken over their sin, like King David going to the Lord in confession, seeking his forgiveness. And that, that prayer was often accompanied by fasting. So whenever you study fasting in the Old Testament, never do you get the impression that fasting had value by itself, just alone. It, it never does. Physically, I guess it might be okay for dieting, but there's no inherent spiritual value to the act of depriving your body of food. Rather, fasting always seems to be married to prayer. Prayer is our primary means of seeking the Lord and drawing near to the Lord. Fasting appears to accentuate prayer. Fasting is the reflection of a soul that is so humble, so desperate, so in need of the Lord that nothing in this world matters, not even food. The New Testament picture of fasting is pretty much the same. It was only commanded once in the Old Testament for Jews, but nonetheless, it became, like I said, a regular part of their daily lives. We learn in the New Testament, the Pharisees boasted of fasting twice weekly. This was common. It was not uncommon to see someone fasting, hear of someone fasting. And not surprisingly, it worked its way into the early church. As in the Old Testament, fasting was associated with prayer. Whenever people were desperate for God's help or wisdom, they they prayed and often with fasting. Acts 13, the leaders of the church of Antioch, they're sending out Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. They do so with prayer and fasting. On the tail end of that first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas revisit the cities where they planted churches. And Acts 14.23 says that they, they appointed elders in every church but only after praying and fasting. We also can include here Christ's own experience of fasting for 40 days in the wilderness before his temptation. And no doubt that was joined with prayer, asking God for strength to overcome the evil one, for strength to begin his formal messianic ministry. What's interesting though is there are no other examples of Jesus fasting. And to the contrary, Matthew 9 reveals that Jesus and his disciples themselves did not practice fasting. You can quickly flip over to Matthew 9. Matthew 9, we'll get here in a couple years probably, but (laughs) Matthew 9, 14. It says, then the disciples of John came to him, Jesus, asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. It seems like everyone who's spiritual and devout around here fasts, but you, your disciples, you guys never fast. Why not? Jesus answers, verse 15, Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. This actually makes perfect sense. 
so far, we've seen fasting is always associated with the prayers of the repentant, the sorrowful, the desperate. Such days would come for Christ's disciples, but not yet. His mere presence with them made it a perpetual occasion of joy, not mourning. The day of fasting for them was not now. Do note, however, Jesus does not preclude fasting for his disciples. In fact, he expects that they will fast one day after his ascension. When he is gone, they will be in desperate need. And on that day, that they will fast. It is telling, though, that Jesus does not view fasting itself as strictly necessary. This is not a mandated practice like prayer. Fasting is, is in a different category of devotion. It is subsidiary to prayer. The only other time Jesus teaches on fasting, it's in a negative light. That's where he rebukes that Pharisee who boasted, I fast twice a week. This Pharisee, though, despite his fasting, was unjustified, unsaved, condemned. Jesus saw no meritorious value in his fasting by itself. I mean, done in the wrong way, with the wrong heart, fasting can turn wrong. All right, with all this in mind, we can make a few big picture points about fasting now. Overall, contrary to other religions in scripture, fasting never seems to have any spiritual value by itself. There's nothing inherently spiritual about depriving your body of food. The Bible does not teach asceticism or that it's virtuous to hurt the body. I mean, contrary to those false teachers in Colossians 2 who taught, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. Paul affirms that such self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, he says, are of no value against uh, protecting from fleshly indulgence. Colossians 2.23 Fasting is not about depriving the body to try and combat sin. As we're learning on Monday nights, our our sin sin problem is not merely skin deep. Instead, fasting always appears to be joined at the hip with prayer. There are plenty of times when people pray without fasting, but almost no times when people fast without praying. And I think fasting is always, or rather, I think prayer is always implied whenever fasting is mentioned. Fasting is subsidiary to prayer. Whenever God's people are desperate, they pray. When they're really desperate, they fast and pray. It's not that skipping a meal suddenly makes your prayers louder in God's ears. It's just that we see this consistent pattern that those who are desperate for God forego food just as a means of heightening their fervency in prayer. It has to be remembered, fasting is not commanded for the church Unlike praying and giving, this is a voluntary act. It's an accepted religious tradition, but you wouldn't call this a spiritual discipline per se. The Bible speaks favorably of it, but since it is nowhere clearly commanded for believers, you cannot argue that a believer is in sin by not fasting. Fasting is left as a voluntary discipline that accentuates the discipline of prayer. And when done in the right way, with the right motive, it has its value attached to prayer. Now, speaking of the right way to fast, there are several passages in the Old Testament where God rebukes Israel for fasting in the wrong way. There is a wrong way to fast. And in those passages, what, what is the wrong way to fast? It has nothing to do with, 
with the minute details, like the time of day, how many meals to skip, how long. Can you have water? None of that matters. Every time God rebukes the fasting of Israel on the Old Testament, it's always about one thing, hypocrisy. God rebuked Israel for their fasting because they were merely going through the motions. They were not desperately seeking him with confession and contrition. Isaiah 58 is the most notable example of this where God rebukes them for their fasting. Why? Well, they're skipping a few meals, but yeah, their hands are covered in blood. They're not helping the needy. They only care about themselves, but they think that because they skip a few meals, they're good with God. It doesn't work that way. You don't bend the ear of God down to earth by fasting, just like you don't bend God's ear by long, meaningless, multiplied prayers, like we learned in the previous section. There's no manipulating God, whether by long prayers or by skipping some meals. God is pleased by faith. He answers the prayer of faith that comes from a humble heart. Fasting then only has value if it's the outward bodily expression of such inward humility. Only those who fast, genuinely believing that man does not live by bread alone, but by every uh, word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, those are the ones who are heard and regarded by God. We could say more. This has not been an exhaustive study on fasting, but I think this this should suffice for now as, as a general introduction. We've seen enough to learn that you would do well to incorporate fasting into your prayer life as you find yourself desperate for God. When you're desperate to know God, desperate to overcome sin, desperate for the salvation of a loved one, desperate for wisdom, for a big decision. You are to express that desperation in prayer, going to God for help. And you could consider adding fasting as part of such prayers. I might add that I think the practical value of fasting in praying has to do with the hunger pains. I don't think the benefit of fasting is as simple as just taking the time you would spend eating and then pray during that time. I get that. That's not a bad thing, but it's going to take me, what, 15, 30 minutes to eat a meal. I could pray 15 to 30 minutes in duration without having to skip a meal. What's the point of that? There's more to fasting than simply recapturing your meal time and turning it into prayer time. There's got to be more, more than that. But I think when you think about it, God made us daily to depend on food. We need to eat. And when we don't, we suffer. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. And this is just my own personal reflection, but I've always taken it that that when you fast, you're meant to turn those hunger pains into prayer. Let every hunger pain be an occasion to remind you to pray for your desperate need while you trust God to sustain your life with more than just bread. With this in mind, I do believe it's acceptable to fast not just from food, but from any cherished physical appetite. And this notion is biblical. Over in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul advocates from a type of fast, or rather for a type of fast, not from food, but from marital intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, you can listen. He says, stop depriving one another, talking to couples. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
It is not okay for a husband and wife to deprive one another of their marital needs, we might say, except when mutually agreed upon for the purpose of prayer. That is a type of fast. So from intimacy to food to comfort to leisure to entertainment to social media, any physical pleasure of the world that may not be inherently sinful, but maybe it has its teeth sunk deep into you, you might do well to fast from it for the purpose of devotion to prayer. As often as you find yourself pining for that thing, pray. That can have the added benefit of helping you discipline your body that you are not mastered by anything. And although I think we can say this, if you choose to incorporate fasting into your prayers, what matters most to God is what? It's having the right motives. The details of how often to fast, how long to fast, when to fast, they seem to matter less. They're not prescribed. They're not regulated. They're not mandated anywhere for us. There seems to be freedom in this voluntary subsidiary discipline. But if done, it must be done with the right motives. Christ only taught on fasting a few times. And when he did, this is what he picks on. Not the minute details. He brings it back to the heart, the motives. And that is the case for our text here in Matthew 6. So having been, I think, enough acquainted with fasting at this point, let's return to our text. It's, it's short. It's simple. We've seen it three times now, but with the, with the previous examples. But what he says here in 16 through 18, it's, again, building off of that main point in verse 1. Beware of practicing righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And to illustrate this point, Jesus uses the same outline three times. He starts with a warning. Don't perform your religious deeds to be seen by others. Then a rebuke. If so, I mean, you've got your reward in full. He then follows it up with a command. Instead, perform your religious deeds in secret. And then a promise, your father will see what you do in secret and reward you. The same outline, each of these three examples. No exception here for the third on fasting. But let's go ahead and go through this text now. We're just going to use Christ's own outline, but to see how we can further take care to practice our righteousness so as not to be seen and noticed by men, but just by God. And here that includes fasting. So we start with number one, the warning in verse 16. The warning where he says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Christ is speaking to his disciples again, and he assumes that they will fast. When, when they fast, whenever they do, is a warning for them, do not put on a gloomy face. Gloomy face, just one word in the Greek, but it means having a stern, sad, sullen look about you. This, this is the person who's like Eeyore. Their, their gloomy, pessimistic character is reflected in their countenance, like baggy eyes, drooping ears, bowed heads, sunken chest, This word was used to describe the two disciples the Lord met on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion, that they just looked depressed. In times of tragedy, your countenance falls, and you can't lift it even if you try. Others might tell you, put on a happy face, but you can't. You just can't. 
Here, though, the warning is, is opposite. We're being told not to put on a gloomy face. Essentially, don't pretend to be gloomy and sad. Why would anyone ever do that? Verse 16, he says, to be noticed by men. Some were fueled by pride and desperately desiring the praise, the attention, the adoration of others. And for such people, their their fasting has nothing to do with desperation for God in prayer. It's just a show designed to draw attention to themselves. Regular fasting had become a badge of honor among the Jews at this time. Jewish records indicate that some Jews would take up on this mantle to pray and fast regularly for rain. Drought was obviously their huge enemy living in that arid land. And so during the rainy season, holy men would take it upon themselves to regularly pray and fast for rain. Only when their prayers were not answered was a national fast called where the whole nation would fast and pray for rain. But these individual Jews who accepted this role, they became deeply respected. It became a a position of prestige. But I'm sure you can see how that came to be a breeding ground for hypocrisy. This type of fasting fed right into the ego of man and his desire to be honored among others instead of honoring God alone. That seems to characterize the Pharisees and all their fasting for whatever occasion. Jesus says those guilty of this type of fasting, he says they're hypocrites. He says, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. We know he has first and foremost in mind the scribes, the Pharisees, that the same guys. He's been calling out their hypocrisy all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, as we learned before, that the Greek word for hypocrite originally referred to actors, those who wore a mask. And back then in their dramas and plays, actors, they did not wear makeup to portray a character. They wore a mask. They were hypocrites acting one way, even though they were someone else. Just playing a part. And that's what these religious leaders were doing. They're just playing a part. They're they're putting on a show of devotion and love for God, intense prayer, but it was just a show that they had no heart for God. They were just doing it because they, they fed off of the applause of men. They wanted the crowd to throw roses at their feet. Fasting was part of their show. We've already learned about act one of their show. Act one was almsgiving, how they put on a show by sounding a trumpet for all to hear when they gave a few coins to someone in need. Act two is about praying where they got on that soapbox right on the busy street corner and prayed loud and clear for all to hear. And now we come to the third and final act of the show, fasting. What did this show consist of? Jesus adds, verse 16, they neglect their appearance. It's an interesting phrase. It literally means they make their faces disappear. But it speaks of changing the appearance of your face, like like you would do if you put on makeup, for example making their faces unrecognizable like like, like a circus clown might do. But these hypocrites, they change their faces not with makeup, but with ashes. Fasting has always been associated with sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was a very coarse, uncomfortable garment. Ashes have always signified desolation and ruin. So the penitent heart throughout the Old Testament would show itself by a person sitting on an ash heap, throwing ash on his head, and wearing sackcloth. 
And it's just a picture of utter humiliation meant to reflect a heart of utter humility and desperation for the Lord. And that's what they would do in Christ's day to a degree. When fasting, they would smear ash on their face, making themselves look pale. That's what's behind this disfiguring of the face or changing the appearance of their face. It's also said that they would wear old, worn-out clothes, if not actual sackcloth. They would have disheveled hair. They would neglect personal hygiene. It was a quite fitting costume, good enough for a Broadway show. All this was theatrics. And going back to chapter 6, verse 1, that, that term for being noticed, we learn, has the same Greek root, uh, root word for the theater. These hypocrites, these actors were, were merely religious actors putting on a performance as if in a theater. And as one commentator put it, sackcloth was their costume, ashes, their makeup. And this was all to be seen and praised by others. Another really fascinating wordplay comes out in verse 16. Jesus says, they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men. I mentioned how that phrase, neglect their appearance, literally means to make their faces disappear. That term is the same verbal root for the word in verse 16 for being noticed. To be noticed means to appear. So you put it together, it's like these hypocrites hypocrites made their faces disappear so that they might appear before others. They hid their faces with ash that they might be seen by others. They weren't trying to hide at all. They were trying to be seen. There's just one problem with this, though, namely that their ash turned into a type of camouflage for God. Suddenly, they could be seen by everyone else, but all of a sudden, God no longer sees them. They're no longer seen by God. This leads to number two, the rebuke. Christ's rebuke, he iterates three times, verse 16, truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full, intended as a rebuke. Obviously, this is not to say God, God literally can't see them anymore, but I mean, he sees them. It's just that he's displeased with them, repulsed by them, because they only care about being seen by others. They don't care about the only audience that matters in all that we do, God. The whole point of fasting while praying is to seek the Lord in devotion. They don't even have one eye heavenward. These hypocrites were not concerned with the Lord at all. They only cared about the crowd showing up at their afternoon show. Their fasting was not for spiritual devotion, but self-promotion. This means that their fasting, just as with their giving and their praying, is of of no value to God. He doesn't see it, which is to say he doesn't regard it. It's of no spiritual value to him. It comes with no reward. Rather, Jesus says they have the reward in full. Those looking for earthly riches and rewards behind their deeds, they'll often find it, whether it's money or acceptance or the applause of the crowd. But the point is that that's all they'll ever get. What this world offers is the best they'll ever get. It's the full extent of the rewards for their deeds. Having forsaken God, they forsake a heavenly reward and at risk is much worse. Uh, worse, heavenly life. But the point here is pretty simple. Make sure this is not you. Right? Do not practice your righteousness in such a way. And on the flip side, thirdly, the command, Jesus commands us otherwise, in verses 17 and 18. Following the same pattern, he says, verse 17, but you, 
when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. Christ's command to his true disciples is basically like, don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites. This does not mean that they are not to fast. Again, he still assumes they will fast. But you, he says, when, when you fast, what? Basically, the command is blend into the crowd. Do everything to not be noticed by others. That's what, behind, uh, that's what is behind this command to wash your face, anoint your head with oil. This is not, not anything spe- uh, special. This is just the ordinary practices of personal hygiene back then. They didn't have showers, so self-care typically involved washing your face, getting the dirt off your face, putting oil in your hair for its smell and texture. But his point is you should take care of your physical appearance like you normally do, precisely so that you do not stand out in a crowd. Act as if you're trying not to be noticed. Because you aren't. That, that's not the goal of fasting. The true disciple has no interest in being noticed by others. He or she is only interested in being noticed by God. We, we only want God to see what we do and why we do it. In fasting, you're not trying to advertise yourself for praise. You're trying to discipline yourself for prayer. So you, when, when you fast, do it in such a way that you will not be noticed by others. No one would guess you're fasting. Don't make it obvious. Practically speaking, I, I kind of think this would preclude painting little ash crosses on your forehead when you think about it, wouldn't it? I mean, is that not like in a subtle way of broadcasting to all that you are very spiritual? You are partaking in this 40-day Lenten fast. No, the, the command in, in all forms, just fast so as not to be seen and noticed by others in any way. But don't worry, no fear. Others may not know you're fasting. They may not see you, but your Father in heaven will see you. This leads to, lastly, number four, the promise. He repeats this three times. Verse 18, And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Fasting truly is a matter between you and God alone. No one else is involved or needs to be involved. It only has an audience of God. And when you keep it that way, from a heart genuinely seeking the Lord, be assured by the Lord's promise, your Father in heaven sees your devotion. He sees what's done in secret. And Christ says, he will reward you. From rewards in heaven to answered prayer on earth, God just heaps grace upon grace upon his people who seek him with a humble heart. And that's what this whole section has been about. Again, by the way, starting at chapter 6, verse 1, he's been showing us the, the true heart of righteousness. Chapter 5, he showed, us, he showed us the true heart of sin. But now he's showing us what it looks like to work true deeds of righteousness before God. God cares about our, our deeds, our works after salvation. But we've learned these two have to start from a heart that seeks him. If you're going to apply what Jesus says here to fasting itself, I mean, it should be painfully obvious, just Do it on the down low. Keep it to yourself. Don't broadcast it. Don't display it. Look normal. Take a shower, shave, brush your teeth. Look like you normally otherwise would. Don't call attention to yourself. It's a matter of personal devotion to the Lord. You do it that way. You keep it that way. 
You can be assured your Father sees and regards your heart that you're expressing in your prayer and fasting. I do want to mention, though, as a final thought, to make sure you understand the balance in Christ's teaching throughout this whole section. Although he tells us to to do our our giving, our praying, our fasting in secret in these instances, he's not suggesting that, that the practice of our faith overall should be always clandestine. Absolute secrecy in living out our faith is both impossible and inconsistent with some other things we're told to do. Didn't Jesus say back in chapter 5, look at Matthew 5.16. Didn't he say back in 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's not very secret. But once again, don't forget the real correction Jesus is offering here in chapter 6. It's not about practicing your righteousness before others. It's not about practicing your righteousness where others can see you. It's about practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. The heart motive is what is in play here, to be noticed by them. It comes down to a person's heart motive. Jesus advocates private devotion in secret as a means of ensuring no dark desire of your flesh finds the light of day. But it's obvious that our deeds of devotion can and will be seen by others at times. This is proven by the fact that in the New Testament, there are occasions of corporate giving, corporate praying, and corporate fasting. Again, it's not very secret, but that's not really the point. The heart motive is what is in play here. And it comes down to why do you do all the things you do as a Christian? Any good deed done to be noticed by others, acclaimed by others, is disqualified. And this reaches far beyond the three examples Jesus gives to us. Even righteous deeds become spoiled and unrighteous when they're tainted with the motive of spiritual pride. And that is what's behind all of this. Which means that it's left up to you to question and examine your own heart. And all that you do, why are you doing it? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Why are you showing up at church? Why are you wearing what you're wearing? Why are you sitting where you're sitting this morning? Why are you serving where you're serving? Is it in some way to be seen, noticed by others? When you sing praise songs, why are you singing so loud everyone around can hear you? Why are you raising your hands? Now, of course, it's not wrong to sing loud or raise your hands. I might ask, why aren't you? But it's still fair to ask yourself, why are you doing it? Is it to be heard, seen, noticed, thought spiritual by others? In small group, why do you ask the questions you ask? Why do you make the comments you make? Are you genuinely curious, trying to be helpful? Or is it a sly way to make sure everyone else knows you know what you're talking about? The the examples of this go on for miles. But look, these are all heart issues. Just by looking at a person, you can't tell. The takeaway is not to go around judging one another, but to go around judging yourself. Just worry about yourself here and judge your own heart and your own motives. Why do you do the things that you do? Just open up your own heart to examine yourself. If in your heart of hearts, you find that you're doing some good things, but just, you're just trying to gain the approval of others or to be noticed by others, You're in the wrong. 
If you continue, you run the risk of all of your spiritual fruit spoiling on the tree with no reward in heaven. You don't want that. If this is you, as you examine your own heart, well, repent of any impure motives. Crucify your spiritual pride. Focus your mind back on the glory of Christ and scriptures. You'll quickly be reminded he's the one who deserves all the attention here. I don't need any attention. To him be the glory. To him be the attention, the praise. This whole life is from him, for him, to him. Seek the Lord. I mean, too often we just care too much about the self. You notice the refrain of these hypocrites three times is that they do their deeds to be noticed by others. You might think, they care so much about others. That's not true. They really just care about themselves. They're really caring about themselves. They're obsessed with self. They, They care so much about self that they wonder and worry what others will think of them, how others might view them. It really comes back to self. They're self-conscious, and that, that's just spiritual pride. The remedy is simple but difficult. It's our call, nonetheless, deny self. The same call of discipleship, deny yourself. The disciple of Jesus is not meant to be self-conscious any longer, but we're not to be entirely God-conscious We're only ever to be concerned with what God thinks of us from our speech to all of our actions. His verdict is the only one that matters. And it should be our ambition to be pleasing to him. So be convicted by the Lord this morning just to deny yourself. Examine your own heart. Focus on yourself and ask the Lord in prayer. Search me. Try me. Is there any deceitful way inside of me? But stop worrying about yourself. Stop trying to impress others. Remember, in all that you do, you have an audience of one. So remember, in all that you do, especially here at church, but your whole life, you only ever have an audience of one, the Lord in heaven, the Father in heaven. He sees all you do. He sees what you do in secret. He sees your heart. But if you seek him from a whole heart, a pure heart, he sees, he knows, he rewards his people. He's good to his people who seek him from a heart. So let us be the type of church that that gives to the Lord and shows the Lord a true heart of righteousness. Let's make that our prayer. Our Father in heaven, that is our prayer before you, that that through your word this morning, which convicts us and, and cuts us all, that it lays us open, lays us bare, and exposes our hearts. We thank you for the new hearts you've given to us in Christ, the Savior who died and rose for us. We thank you for the gift of new birth where you've, you've given new life within us. But our, our newness must be renewed, must grow. The flesh remains. And spiritual pride can't afflict any of us, all of us, left unaddressed. And so open us up this morning by your convicting word to, to peer within. Let your word cut us and, and expose any cancer that might remain. We don't want to live for the glory of self. How can we, knowing our gospel? How could we ever seek praise and attention for ourselves. Help us not to be deceived by our own sin, but encouraged to give all the glory to you. It doesn't mean we change the things we do necessarily, but just, just give us pure motives that we're doing the right things from the right reasons. Then we can be assured you're pleased. Our Father in heaven is pleased. He smiles upon us. He will reward us. We thank you for your grace upon grace and, and how you treat us and deal with us. To purify the hearts of your people this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.